there are so many songs that are written on the subject, both classics and contemporary in the religious world, tell us about the enduring nature of the importance of our subject tonight. When we think about how it strikes a chord, it's more than an ornament to be worn around the neck or a symbol in society. It runs much deeper, and yet it's most basic and fundamental. A lot of the songs, and I appreciate David for the preparation he did, dedicate themselves to that theme. I want to think about, as we start tonight, one particular one. There was a hymn scholar by the name of Lionel Adey. And as he talked about the song, he said that there are certain lines of this song that are personal to each singer. One that may call for action or repudiation or rejection of self. I did the math and it was written 316 years ago. But to the people who drink deeply of the words of that song, it is as meaningful and as relevant today as it was the day that Isaac Watts sat down to compose that hymn at the dawn of the 18th century. Ted Smith, who writes about the song, says that it seems to me as though Isaac Watts composed his text while standing at the foot of Christ's cross. You know the lyrics. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, saving the death of Christ my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, as you look at that song, those who have analyzed it say that it appears to be inspired by, that is, moved or or motivated by the words of the Apostle Paul. And we can see shades of Philippians chapter 3 in what Paul writes. But most directly, as it was in the song, How Deep the Father's Love, you can see Galatians 6 and verse 14. Now, when Isaac Watt would have written this, he would have only had privy to the King James Version, not that old a version at that time. And the verse read, But God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And I see that. But I have to tell you, every time that I sing that song, my mind is not drawn to the epistles, it's drawn to the gospels. All four gospel writers devote themselves to a focus on the cross of Calvary because it is at the heart of who we are as the followers of Christ. I don't suppose that we could ever spend too much time at the foot of the cross. When I was a freshman at Faulkner University, Brother Wendell Winkler had a man by the name of Franklin Camp to speak multiple times on the program. There were several scheduled appointments that he had, but there was also an after-lunch banquet at which he was the speaker. And as he stood up, his assigned topic was 10 suggestions that I would like to make to the churches of Christ. 
And the very first suggestion he made was, we need to spend more time at the foot of the cross. And as a development of that point, he said, I do not know a congregation that has an attendance problem. I don't know one that has an attitude or a moral problem. The problem we have collectively and individually is we have not spent sufficient time at the foot of the cross. And when I think about the book of Acts and how Luke records for us the preaching and the Bible studies that take place, there is this constant presentation of the cross of Jesus Christ as central and important in our lives. I believe if we are going to see God's big picture, we have got to sit and look at the cross of Christ. And of all the gospel writers, I want us to focus and just do so briefly on the gospel of Mark. Mark is the gospel writer in the hurry. He writes the shortest of the gospels. He loves the word immediately and it seems as though he's speeding us right into the ministry of Jesus all the way up to the cross. He wants to get us there as quickly as he can. And as we go with him, I want us to see at least four things he sees in Mark chapter 15 as we look together at the cross of Calvary. Number one, as I look at the cross of Calvary, I see suffering. It is the dominant feature of this chapter. It is found throughout. We see this suffering. As the, a song that we just mentioned says, see from his head, his hands and his feet. And I'd like for us to do so briefly, just hitting some of the highlights as we walk through the chapter. For example, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15 it says, and they had Jesus scourged. Now, I remember that day in fourth grade when I was in elementary school. I was not the greatest student, but I loved history. We had our social studies book, and I pulled it out, and I was thumbing through it and looking at, honestly, the pictures that were all throughout there. And as I did, I settled on one that was from the Civil War time period. And there was a picture that I, to this day, cannot forget. It was of a slave by the name of Gordon. It's an iconic photo. Perhaps you have seen it. There, uh, Gordon sits with his back to the camera and his back is scarred from extreme whippings. It made me nauseous just to see the photo and yet somehow I found myself at least periodically going back and looking at that picture and I always asked myself, how is it that one person could do that to another human being? And while Gordon could not have done anything to have merited what he got, he was not even able to have his own freedom. Jesus was the only perfectly innocent one to ever live. And Jesus endured what the scriptures say in Mark chapter 15, and I find it very interesting that Mark mentions this with no details, an event that at times killed its victim. Even the clinical definition of scourging is chilling. That it means the, the whipping of a person with a whip at which is attached uh, uh, thorns and spikes and other hooks that are attached to the end of the whip. A Roman flagellum was constructed in such a way that there were several cords or leather thongs that were attached to the end of the handle. And it was weighted down with broken pieces of bone and metal to maximize the pain and the effectiveness of every blow. And unlike a Jewish scourging in which there was a limited number of stripes that could be given, a Roman had no such restriction. And while typically it is thought that the beatings that were given to, by a, a Jew to a Jew would have been restricted to the back area, the Roman could strike wherever he wished. 
wherever it, he felt like it in the moment. And my Lord, as he is on his way to Calvary, Mark simply says it, he was scourged. And as I think about what happens next, as Jesus is handled as the sport of those who did not even believe who he was, Jesus is at one point handed off to Herod, and Herod and his soldiers, as they're mocking Jesus, they put a, a robe on him as part of their mockery. As you think about the clotting and the coagulating of the blood on the back, as that robe has sat there for a while, surely it would have adhered. And when they were done with him, they stripped that robe off of him, adding to the pain. In verse 17, we see that they plaited a crown of thorns and they put it on him. As we consider this gesture, this was also for mockery, the same as the robe that was put on him and the inscription that was going to be written over the cross, this is the king of the Jews. And while it was meant to make sport of him, it would have been very painful. There's something about that network of nerves and blood vessels around the cranium. And as that crown of thorn was pressed there, it would have caused that pain to be shooting and stabbing and dull and throbbing. And while Mark tells us that they took the robe off of him, there is no indication that the crown ever came off of his head. In verse 19, as we keep that still in our mind, we realize that he was smitten on the head with a reed. And you think about that stick that they would have taken. They would have hit that crown of thorns and it would have gone more deeply into his forehead and his skull. And given the events of the day, this would not have been gentle blows. This would have been concussive in its nature. But as we think of all that Mark is telling us, really with incredible brevity, that's driven by this inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that there were other ways that they inflicted their cruelty. It wasn't just with their fists and with their tools of cruelty. It was what they said. In verse 3, the scriptures say that they would have hurled accusations at him, obviously all of which were not true. In verse 19, it says that they spit on him. One of the most hateful physical gestures that one could make short of actually assaulting someone. They're, they're demonstrating their contempt for Jesus. And then in verse 20 and verse 31, we see the Jews and the Romans joined together in mocking him, laughing at him, ridiculing him. In verse 29, we see that they railed on him. They would have called him names. Perhaps they would have even been the profanity that was in vogue for the day. And then in verse 32, we see that crucified criminals insulted him. And so as Jesus is on his way to the cross, and as he is fastened there, we see the suffering that he goes through. And all of this is prefatory to what is said in verse 24, as Mark just gets to the point, and he simply says that they crucified him. Of all the pain that's gone on up to this point, it's a mere prelude to this disaster. And when we begin to examine what takes place in the first century world in the Roman era, we learn some facts about how a crucifixion would have ordinarily gone. We see circumstances in which the victim would have been tied, held to the cross by ropes, but they nailed Jesus. And as you examine some of the archaeological evidence that's been found in some of the writings of the day, you'll find that that nail could have been driven anywhere from the forearm to the wrist. They would have overlapped his feet and would have driven that nail, or perhaps at times they did it through the heels. I know that not a bone of him was broken, but I know that he was fastened by nails to that cross. 
And the victim on the cross was held for as many hours or days as it took to die by asphyxiation or exhaustion or dehydration or shock or even heart failure. The victim on the cross would sag down and their air would fill with lungs. Carbon monoxide poisoning was slowly happening. They could not exhale. And when they pushed up the pain of the nerves where the nails were, made the experience excruciating. But the lack of air was terrorizing. And the panic that came from that added to the suffering of the cross. You know, we're not even taking much time to talk about the fact that Jesus felt the pain, the suffering of being separated from the Father. Verse 34. If there was ever an occasion where there was one who wanted God to stand up and say, I'm on His side. He's, he's right. It would have been Jesus as He hung prostrate before His tormentors. You know, as you begin to see these details of the cross, surely the question why at some point is going to come into your heart and your mind. Every illustration of pain... And hurt illustrates how serious our sin is. And how profound the Father's love is for us that He's willing to pay such a price for our wrongdoing. And the unselfishness of Jesus that He would give Him up for me. He loved me and He gave Himself for me. And when I hear that from Galatians 2 in verse 20, it flushes away my stubborn pride for why I would not submit to the Christ of the cross. But when I look at the cross, I see suffering. But then second, when I look at the cross, I see sinners. If there is a picture that is as prevalently painted in the chapter besides the pain of the cross, it is the depiction of sinners. I suppose if we were to try to categorize all of the sinners that we find in this chapter, they would at first glance fall into five categories. The first category would have been the Jewish religious leaders in verse 1, verse 10, and verse 11. They know that they can only go so far. They can't actually execute Jesus Christ on the cross. And so they manipulate and they threat and they coerce Pilate to try to intimidate him into putting Jesus on the cross of Calvary. They do everything they can to see that Jesus dies. But then second, you'll notice that there's another category and that's the Roman military and political leaders in the chapter in verses 1 through 20. And there's an array of them. They're either callous or cowardly as they're painted for us. They don't care about the identity of Jesus and they're doing their work with however much delight. The third category that we see in this chapter are the passers-by, the crowd. We see them in verses 8 through 15 and verses 29 through 32. And I wonder about the constitution of that vast group on that day. Surely in a crowd that size, aren't there some who had been the recipients of the loaves and the fish. Jesus fed 5,000 men and 4,000 men plus their families on two occasions. How many of them maybe had their loved one healed from a sickness or even raised from the dead? I wonder how many in that crowd were worshiping him and adoring him and throwing down their garments and branches on Tuesday and now they're screaming for him to die on Friday. The fourth category is a condemned criminal. We read about him in verse 7 and verse 15. We know his name is Barabbas. You think about Barabbas. He wakes up on that Friday morning and he believes this is the last day of his life. 
And yet he hears his name called as he's excused. He is not going to die. And I wonder what he does. Does he run away from that scene as quickly as he can? Or does he melt himself into the crowd so that he can see what happens to the three men who are not going to be pardoned that day? As I look and I see those who are present that day, the sinners, very obviously another group comes to my mind. In verse 27 and 28, it's those crucified criminals who are there with Jesus. The text tells us that they also mocked and ridiculed and cursed Jesus. And while Luke tells us that one of them is going to experience a change of heart, there is a time when both of them are using that precious air that we talked about to mock and to ridicule Jesus. But as I step back, I realize that I haven't counted correctly. There aren't five categories. There are six. I want you to think about everybody else in that chapter. There's Simon of Serene. There's the women. There's the centurion. There's Joseph of Arimathea. Now these were either neutral or supportive of Jesus, but Jesus' death was necessary it benefited them as well. Rembrandt painted a painting known as the Raising of the Cross, a very iconic painting. He did it for Prince Frederick Henry of Orange. And if you look at that painting, down in one corner of the painting, there is a man in a blue painter's beret. And his hands are in the mix of those who are lifting up that cross because Rembrandt understood fully that he was as responsible as the Jews and the Romans that day for Jesus hanging on that cross. My sin led Jesus to the cross. For me, the Savior bled. He took my sin and bore its dross and died there in my stead. Such wondrous love that he should show such grace when I too share an equal part for well I know I nailed my Savior there. When I look at the cross of Jesus, I see sinners, which means I see myself. But God committed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through which we have received the atonement. As for us by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When I look at the cross, I can never look without seeing sinners, without seeing myself. When I look up at the cross, third, I see power. I see God's power. In verse 38, I don't see the power of the Romans and I don't see the power of the Jews. And it's incredible for me to think as I look at verse 38 that I see that when Jesus is allowed to be arrested, he's allowed to be tried, he's allowed to be beaten, and now he's allowed to be killed on a cross. But when we look and see what Scripture says, when the New Testament preachers got up and they talked about it, that's exactly what they said. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, in the first gospel sermon, we read that uh, God, was, uh, God delivered Christ up by his predetermined plan and his foreknowledge. Jesus knew it, Luke 22 and verse 22, for the Son of Man must be delivered as has been fulfilled. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, the Apostle Peter is preaching the second gospel sermon and he says that God spoke through the mouth of his promises that as Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. 
In 1 Peter 1, verse 18 through 20, Peter says that we are redeemed by the blood of Christ that's appointing to the cross that was foreknown from the foundation of the world. And so God knew. God was in control. But I want you to think about a couple of things that are happening right at the moment that should have been an indication that God was fully in control. For one thing, there was the tearing of the temple veil from the top to the bottom. That temple veil, that's not some thin curtain. That would have required several men to uh, hoist into place. That the power of God at the moment of his death causes that veil to be torn in two. And then there's an earthquake. And this earthquake, Matthew tells us more about it. He says, in that particular moment, the saints that were in the grave, some of them arose and walked around Jerusalem. Matthew 27, verse 51 through 53. The tearing of the temple veil symbolized that the old law was no more, that Christ by his death had taken it out of the way. Colossians 2, verse 14. But then that resurrected saints, the earthquake shows the power of God over death, a power that he was going to most fully show when his son comes out out of the tomb on the third day he's going to die never to die again arisen he's the first fruits of them that sleep 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 the Jews and the, the Romans who were paying attention saw on the cross not a victim but a victor the apostle Paul says it this way for the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness but to us who are saved it is the power of God When I look at the cross, I see God's power. But when I look at the cross of Calvary, I also see blessed assurance. I mean, at the most unthinkable moment, when you would least expect it, there's assurance. In verse 39 through 47, again, there are groups that are present there that are showing their confidence in who Jesus is. They may not fully understand all the plan yet, and yet... They are filled with trust. The first one that I look at is the centurion in verse 39. And I see that Mark says that he was recognizing that he was witnessing the dying of the Son of God. Mark says that he did this or he felt this because he saw Jesus and how he breathed his last. Matthew adds that the earthquake and the resurrected saints helped with this. But I do know that around him, this centurion had no popularity reason to be convicted as he was because the crowd didn't feel that way, the various leaders didn't feel that way, and yet he did. What about the women? These women who had supported Jesus from the beginning of his ministry, these women went where most of his disciples did not go, all the way to the cross. And of all the people that Jesus could have disclosed himself to when he was raised from the grave, he chose one of these women to be the first to show himself to when he was raised from the dead. And then there's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a part of the Sanhedrin council. This was the council that voted and in their decision they had Jesus arrested and tried before Pilate. And I have no reason to believe that Joseph of Arimathea participated in that. And yet this prominent person put his position on the line so that he could boldly go and crave the body of Jesus so they could bury it in his, him in his own tomb. I realize that sinners hated him. That the disciples ran for him, but there were some who were willing to run the risk for him. 
They did not lick their finger and stick it to the wind of popular opinion at the foot of the cross. They didn't wait to see how the earthquake and the the renovated temple caused others to react and respond. There at the cross of Calvary, there was a small group who were filled with blessed assurance. But as I look at the cross, I realize there's a sobering observation to make. You can be close to the cross and ultimately not benefited by it. I look and examine the scenes around the cross of Calvary, and there I don't know how close or far those three were hung. But the condemned criminal that never repented, he was certainly close enough to Jesus so they could converse, and his proximity to Jesus did him no good. There are soldiers at the foot of the cross who actually have the garments of the Son of God in their hand. They're gambling for them. Presumably they could have reached up and touched the cross, but their proximity did them no good. And what about the passers-by? There have been some who have suggested as we've taken tours around the city of Jerusalem that the cross would have been very close to a very public road. And we think of it being very high off the ground, but maybe it was low enough that people could come by and touch perhaps that some of the persecution that Jesus is enduring on the cross. They were that close. And it did them no good. And so I I say to myself, where could I be closer to the cross of Calvary on this earth than in the assemblies and worship to God? Hebrews 2 and verse 12, Jesus is here in the assembly with us. That, by the way, in allusion to Psalm 22, a crucifixion psalm. Where could one be closer to the cross than being raised in a Christian home? Where can one be closer to the cross than reading and knowing the Bible? The question, I guess, that we have to ask is, what will I do with the cross of Jesus? An even better question to ask is, what will I allow the cross of Jesus to do to me? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, doesn't it? You know, as I think about the cross of Calvary, we're benefited every time we spend some time at the foot of the cross. And when we do, we see suffering, the suffering of an innocent for a guilty world because he loved me so. I see sinners. Oh, some of them are very easy to spot. Some are a little bit more subtle. But all of us are bound together by that fact. But I see the power of God. The cross is not a mistake. It's not an alternative. It is the most powerful demonstration of the love of God. And I see blessed assurance. It will never be a crowded place at the foot of the cross. But if we will determine to keep ourselves there... We will see him as he really is, in his splendor and in his love. Pilate let an innocent man die. But what will we do with the innocent man that died? Lyle said on the hill of Calvary, there were three crosses and three men. One died in sin, one died to sin, and one died for sin. We cannot be that third man. All of us are either the first or the second. 
To be one who dies in sin like that unrepentant thief. It's one who can be as close to the cross of Calvary as they wish and ultimately not be benefited. To hear God's plan of salvation, to know his will, to know what it means to live a Christ-like life, a life of discipleship, a faithful Christian life, and decide to pass. Or we can die to sin. That happens in the waters of baptism when we come into Christ. It continues to happen as we walk in the light and the blood of Christ cleanses us from our sins. This evening, in a crowd this size, there may be someone who's not yet been united with Christ and had the blood of Him to cover their sins. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. It may be that you want to respond publicly. We would love to help you to make that decision the greatest decision of all. Oh, what wondrous love that made it possible. Maybe you want to do it some other time. Please let us know. Don't delay. Take care of it. If you're a child of God who needs to either confess faults or to pray for strength, we would love to help you to do that. This is a loving family. You know that when you respond, they'll put their arms around you and they'll encourage you and they'll help you. If this is your invitation, we would urge you to come right now as we stand.